Hi, dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Amy Brandt. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we will talk about how London's COVID surge is shutting down West End shows, even as the country itself has now officially reopened, and about what that might portend for the fall performing arts season stateside. We will discuss why ageism remains such an entrenched problem in dance. And we will get into the New York Times bombshell of an article about Georgina Pescogan's new memoir, Swan Dive, which is a bracingly candid look at ballet culture. Uh, But first, we have some big news of our own. We are doing a soft launch of the Dance Edit Extra, our new premium interview series that'll be happening this Saturday, July 24th. We're going to be dropping the first episode of the series, which is an interview with choreographer Andrea Miller, right into the regular Dance Edit podcast feed. And to clarify, because I know this is a little bit confusing, so going forward after the soft launch, you'll need to subscribe to a separate Dance Edit Extra feed to get the Edit Extra episodes. But first, we wanted to give you all a sense of, you know, what the series has to offer. So if you already subscribe to this podcast, Andrea's Edit Extra interview will just pop right up in your list of episodes this weekend. If you don't subscribe to this podcast, well, clearly now is the time to do so on your listening platform of choice or at thedanceedit.com slash podcast. And thedanceedit.com slash podcast is also where you can go to learn more about The Dance Edit Extra. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Take it away, Amy. Thanks, Margaret. (laughs) That was so newscastery. (laughs) The 2021 Dance Teacher Awardees have been announced. This year's awards will honor Joole Willa Joe Zoller, Florida State University professor and founder of Urban Bushwomen, Ava Encinia Sandoval, the creator of the University of New Mexico's Flamenco program, the only BA program of its kind in the U.S., Antoine Hunter, artistic director of the San Francisco-based Urban Jazz Dance Company, who teaches dance and American Sign Language to both hearing and deaf communities, Charisma J, owner of the Brooklyn, New York-based Abundance Academy of the Arts, Dr. Niyama McCarthy-Brown, an author and assistant professor of community engagement through dance at the Ohio State University. Dr. Doug Reisner, director of the MA in Dance Teaching Artistry program in the Maggie Olesey Department of Theater and Dance at Wayne State University. And Alice Tierstein, founder of New York City's Young Dance Makers Company. Very impressive list. This year, Dance Teacher is once again partnering with Move NYC, so all proceeds from tickets sold at this year's DT Awards will go to fund the Dance Teacher Scholarship. We'll include a link in the show notes where you can find out more about all of that. That is such a spectacular group. Congrats to everybody. Some more happy news. Lena Bloom, a dancer and actress who came up through the underground ballroom scenes of Philadelphia and New York, just became the first transgender model to appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated's swimsuit issue. And the swimsuit issue has, of course, been criticized in the past for reinforcing gender stereotypes. So this is at least a signal that the brand is sort of moving into the future. Um, The issue actually had three cover stars in addition to Lena Bloom, rapper Megan Thee Stallion, and tennis champ Naomi Osaka also got covers. Yay. Filmmaker Matthew A. Cherry, who created the Oscar-winning animated short Hair Love, is partnering with director-writer Chaz Bottoms to create a new animated series called Batu for the Cartoon Network. 
The series follows two young Chicago hip-lay dancers. Hip-lay is a blend of ballet and hip-hop that is attributed to Homer Hans Bryant, a very well-known Chicago ballet teacher at the Chicago Multicultural Dance Center. His dancers have been on America's Got Talent and all over social media. No news on when this cartoon based on hip-lay is coming to TV, but keep an eye out. Yeah, and it sounds like the creators have been working with Homer Hans Bryant to create the series, so the dancing should be on point in both senses of the phrase. (laughs) Um, Spoleto Festival USA, which mounts the prestigious dance and music field Spoleto Festival each summer in Charleston, announced that Mina Marcana will become its new general director. Hannah, who is a music scholar known for his critiques of the legacy of colonialism in art, will be the group's first director of color. And also its first new director in a long time. Nigel Redden, the previous leader, was with Spoleto for 35 years. So big changes are potentially ahead there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see you know, what happens there. Um, Kotzbahn Cultural Park in Tivoli, New York, has announced its 2021 Summer Festival lineup. The Dance Fest will take place both outdoors and indoors at their theater on Saturdays and Sundays from August 28th through September 12th. Kotzbahn will feature three new classical dance commissions from Gemma Bond, Claire Davison, and Lauren Lovett with live music, um, and a premiere screening of In Balanchine's Classroom. Meryl Ashley is featured in the film and will be speaking at the event. And also a free weekend of Western swing dance, um, which should be really fun. So... Yeah, and it's definitely worth noting that all three of those commissions are by women, which is great. I mean, Sonia and Stella continuing to do exciting things at Katzbahn. Yeah, it's fun to see the touch she's bringing. Yeah, yeah. Bloomberg Philanthropies announced a new $30 million program to improve technological infrastructure at cultural organizations as a way of helping them stabilize following the pandemic. And the initial group of beneficiaries of this digital accelerator project includes the Apollo Theater, Ballet Hispanico, Mark Morris Dance Group, and New York City Center. Washington, D.C.'s Signature Theater has named Matthew Gardner as its new artistic director. He has a long association with the company as a choreographer and for 10 years as its associate director. And next season, Signature Theater will present a pre-Broadway production of K-pop, the Broadway musical, by Jason Kim, Helen Park, and Max Vernon, and choreographed by Jennifer Weber. So, I mean, the, the whole season that they announced is full of interesting things, but I have to admit that my heart skipped a beat just hearing the title, K-pop, the Broadway musical. <laughs> I know, me too. I mean, I, I know it's been around for a while. I think it had an off-Broadway production, a brief one back in 2017. But finding it a real path to Broadway? Yes, please. Let's do it. Yeah, it should be very dancey. So here's one of the most delightful stories of the week. It turns out gymnastics superstar Simone Biles enlisted the help of her former Dancing with the Stars partner, Sasha Farber, to choreograph her Olympic floor routine. Biles said she asked Farber to help her, quote, spice it up, unquote. Um, she also revealed that she has a lot more autonomy now over her routines than she did earlier in her career, which is what made this type of collaboration possible, which is interesting. I mean, I always love a gymnastics and dance crossover. And I think this connects to some of our past conversations on the podcast about dance and figure skating crossovers too. these places where athletics and artistry meet in ways that are interesting and sometimes complicated. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. She has like a Facebook watch series mm-hmm. and you can see a little bit of it on it there. And uh, it looks it looks fun. So. Yeah, I should clarify. That's where all of this information is coming from, from her Facebook watch series. <laughs> we'll include the link in the show notes. 
And it's been another sad month for the dance world, as we've lost several legendary artists this month. Paul Huntley, who created hairstyles and wigs for more than 200 Broadway shows, including Chicago and Cats, has died at age 88. Don Martin, a dancer and choreographer who taught Horton technique to generations of students at the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts, has died at age 90. Dance scholar, teacher, and mentor Allegra Fuller-Snyder, a former chair of UCLA's dance department, has passed away at age 93. Sheldon Soffer, manager and mentor to generations of performers and arts professionals, has died at age 93. Oleg Briansky, the international ballet star who became a renowned ballet teacher, has died at age 91. And Patricia Wilde, an early member of New York City Ballet and later artistic director of Pittsburgh Ballet Theater, has passed away. Yeah, I mean, Pat Wilde, who died just a few days after, I think, her 93rd birthday. Like, we went from happy birthday posts to in-memoriam posts. Yeah. Another week of huge losses. So in our first roundtable segment today, well, duet segment today, um, we want to talk about what is happening in the London performing arts scene right now, because it's kind of a mess. Um, The country officially got rid of all COVID-related restrictions this week, allowing theaters and clubs to open at full capacity and no longer requiring audience members to wear masks. But the government still mandates that any person who tests positive and all of their close contacts quarantine for 10 days. Many young performers are actually not yet vaccinated. Plus, of course, the country is seeing a huge surge in virus cases right now due to the more easily transmissible Delta variant which means there's this weird split screen going on. It's supposed to be this like celebratory moment of reopening, but many West End shows have actually been forced to shut down as members of their teams have tested positive. Yeah, it's very odd because, you know, people are going back to nightclubs and such and are fully allowed to do so without masks, mm-hmm. but yet the performing arts scene is under such stringent COVID protocols where, you know, even it sounds like the majority of people from at least from this New York Times article, it sounded like a majority of the people were contacts, close contacts of someone who had been infected, but weren't even like testing positive, but yet needed, you know. So yeah, it does ask a lot of questions about how things are going to turn out here in the fall, we've been ramping up. And, you know, maybe I don't know, I Europe opened up a lot sooner than we did their performing mm-hmm. arts. You know, we kind of like a lot of American dance companies just canceled their season and went digital. And perhaps that was more helpful in the long run, even though it seemed extreme at the time. But I, I don't know. Oh, I feel like it's just so hard because there are no right answers. And uh, there are so many strong opinions on all sides of every argument. Like, uh, so Andrew Lloyd Webber delayed the opening of his Cinderella yet again, and made this I mean, in his typical fashion, very dramatic statement. He essentially wants to force the British government to change its rules about this quarantine for anybody who has a positive test plus their close contacts. And he's been running that campaign for a long time. He's like the leader of the reopen theaters now parade. And you totally understand his urgency. And like, yeah, as you said, theaters in London did reopen and close several different times. They've kind of been through this before. And we know that Mm -hmm. financially and emotionally... The longer things are shut down, the bleaker stuff looks for the performing arts. But oh, it also makes me so deeply anxious to think of further loosening rules just as cases are surging. Right. And the article does say that fully vaccinated close contacts 
won't have to quarantine starting August 16th. So there's like a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel as far as these like strict regulations that the government is imposing on theaters. But I mean, it just seems like every night that they have to cancel is like a million dollars or something, you know, that they lose. (laughs) The stakes are just so high in so many different senses. Like London is cresting, or maybe not even cresting, maybe just riding, but this wave that we are just beginning to ride in the US when it comes to the Delta variant. So yeah, Mm -hmm. we have to look at this as a warning for fall performance seasons in the US too. And Mm -hmm. I mean, the New York Times did that piece about a week ago about how the return of the arts and especially the performing arts is critical to the health of New York City's economy, like so critical that the way the arts return and the success of that return will be sort of a leading indicator for the state and even the country. Um, Like, Mm -hmm. it'll either go well and be a model to follow or go poorly and be a warning to heed. Right. I I don't know. It's so hard because I feel like a lot of the coverage that's been happening recently, and we're guilty of this on the podcast, too, because it's so tempting has been almost obstinately forward-looking, you know, like, mm-hmm. we have the vaccine, we're about to be on the other side of this, how should we think about this brave new arts world? But the virus is still such a real threat, and presenters and artists are just going to have to continue to deal with that in the months ahead. And oh, man, it makes me tired even just saying that out loud. Yeah, and, and you know, things just keep changing so quickly all the time. And, and so I you you wonder how they will handle it if it will be a matter of demanding vaccination in order to see the program like at the Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. show on Broadway that's happening right now like you must be vaccinated you must bring proof of vaccination in order to enter the theater will they reduce their schedules will they limit capacity will they do less shows a week and what will that impact be financially right you know if they have to do those things how will they make the bottom line balance yeah and if they have to increase ticket prices, you know, not only on Broadway, but ballet companies, dance companies, uh, presenters around the country, if they have to increase ticket prices in order to help make up for that loss, like what will that mean for audiences? Will they come back then if the tickets are too expensive? I mean, you know, it's like there's so many questions. So many different cans of worms that are going to be opened. Oy. So if we could keep talking about this for like two more episodes worth of content, I'm sorry. <laughs> So next on the agenda today, we have a piece that came out in The Observer recently about ageism in dance. And this is one of those stories that is, unfortunately, deeply evergreen in the sense that it could have run almost word for word five or 10 or 25 or 50 years Mm -hmm. ago. But it is true that now is a particularly good time to address this issue with this pandemic pause, kind of pushing the dance world to rethink what a dancer should be or should heavy quotation marks look like. And the article talks to a bunch of brilliant dancers over 40 about why the whole dancers have short careers, that's just the way it is, narrative doesn't have to be true. Clearly, mature dancers do have things to contribute that are invaluable to the art form. So why is the Western dance world still so ageist? Amy, I know you have a lot to say about this. Yeah, first, I mean, there is some truth to why is it a short career? I mean, as I know what it feels like to age as a dancer and to feel my body fighting me and to feel all those years of injuries Mm -hmm. build up and sort of calcify and make things a lot harder and make things a lot less fun. (laughs) You know, I mean, when I retired, I was, I don't remember if I was 36 or 37 when I kind of officially stopped dancing. I mean, I couldn't do the splits anymore because I had hip injuries. I was losing that sort of razor sharp foot articulation on point. And, you know, the body 
does change. So there are some aspects that I found a little simplistic in the article itself. But I'm also coming <laughs> from a very classical ballet perspective, and where it's very rare that people can dance at that like high classical level beyond their early 40s. And it's usually they're exceptionally talented people who have a lot of resources at their disposal, which I did not have. Um, <laughs> you know, but that said, there is a lot of truth to the fact that you can make beautiful dance art as a mature dancer. You lean less on your technique and you lean more on your experience and the artistry part of the craft. And that can make for some really gorgeous performances. I mean, I still remember a performance I saw with Margie Gillis years ago, you know, with her hair mm -hmm. at, at, mm -hmm. at um, NYU. And I think, I think Adam Burke choreographed the piece for her. Um, it was stunning. And it's kind of burns in my memory or I saw something with Mikhail Brishnikov did something at his art center years ago as well. He was dancing and then there was video footage of his younger, you know, early days in Russia. And mm -hmm. it was really fascinating to watch him dance now and, you know, in live in the flesh and then behind him to see him as a younger man and just to see the physical differences in his body. But like, it was still a beautiful performance you you learn how to use your energy differently. It's just like all those years of learning and building that you do as an artist, those don't leave you, even if mm -hmm. the physical things do. Like the things that those things continue to build and mm -hmm. become easier to access as you age as a dancer. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny physical reality, but there are so many other different avenues to explore Mm -hmm. as dancers sort of come into their own as as artists, as artistic thinkers. I mean, I, I, this piece, as you said, I think it is a little bit oversimplified, especially if you are somebody who's been inside of dance for a long time. But the reason to read it is because it has these incredible quotes from all of these great dance artists over 40 mm -hmm. um, who have wonderful things to say because, of course, they do. They're grownups with deep wells of experience and intelligence and insight. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them so compelling on stage, too. I actually... I especially loved hearing, oh, I forget who it was, but hearing one of them talk about the energetic and communal benefits of including older performers in a group mm -hmm. about how the whole community can learn from their ways of being and working. Mm -hmm. And the article points out that actually a lot of non-Western cultures recognize and celebrate that right. pretty openly. Yeah. And that idea of the like young and physically superhuman dancer, that's a pretty Eurocentric idea. So this issue actually connects and intersects with a lot of other discussions the dance world has been having about inclusivity. Yeah. There's a learning curve, I think, that audiences need to make, too, mm -hmm. where they aren't just always expecting bravura, specifically with ballet, of course, when they are seeing an older artist and to learn how to appreciate the things that they do bring to their performances. Yeah. And the best way to educate audiences is to aspire for greater representation in dance. So there just are more performances by older artists that showcase a wider range of mm -hmm. what dance, get, here's that word again, should look right. like. Anyway, if you want yet more proof that mature dancers are spectacular, look no farther than Dance Magazine's July cover story. It is totally. a roundup of 30 dancers over 30. We'll link to that in the show notes. All the proof you need is, is right there in that story. Yeah. So finally today, we have to talk about the New York Times piece on Swan Dive, which is the new memoir by New York City ballet soloist and friend of the pod, Georgina Pascogan. Um, everybody is abuzz about this story and about this book. You heard our interview with Georgina and Phil Chan about their work with Final Bow for Yellowface back in episode 62. So you already know that Gina is 
absolutely unafraid to tell things like they are. And in the article, she talks with typical candor about some of the stories in her memoir. Some of them are genuinely shocking, and some of them are, for those of us in or around the ballet community, sadly not shocking at all. Um, Just before we start the discussion, Amy and I have not read Swan Dive in its entirety yet. Just get that on the record. But there's a lot to unpack even in the Times article alone. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, first and foremost, you know, she says that, you know, the brave thing isn't writing the book. The brave thing is going back to work when the book comes out in Mm -hmm. August, which, you know, because I do think we've been getting a lot of um, anonymous sources in these Mm-hmm. stories coming out of New York City Ballet over the years, you know, from within the company. And this is not an anonymous source. I mean, she kind of really lays it all out there. And so I'm interested to see what impact that has on the company itself, on the company culture, on on this discussion we've all been having about ballet and how it needs to evolve in so many mm-hmm. ways. Um to finally see someone just speak with such bluntness from inside is, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I have, I've had the same reaction reading the parts of it that I've been able to read so far that I had reading like Dancing on My Grave. It's, it's very much a Gelsey kind of story in that all the names are named. Mm-hmm. All the major players are there. It's as bad as you thought it was, sometimes worse. I thought it was interesting. She said in the New York Times interview that Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential was a model as she was writing her book, because that makes a lot of sense. Kitchen Confidential was had that same kind of blunt honesty about the bad, but also the good Mm -hmm. of the restaurant world that made its criticism hit more effectively because it was coming from this place of knowledge and respect. And Gina says in the interview, she feels the same way about ballet. I think her direct quote is, I love ballet and I love this company and I believe in it 1000%, which means that her indictments feel all the more believable, first of all, and and cutting. Right. Um, This story was the first time I'd heard about her relationship with Meryl Ashley and that Meryl had been so staunchly in her corner, Mm -hmm. like from the time she first coached Gina in Ballad de la Regina for the SAB workshop. Right. And apparently had super real conversations with her about you're not going to be used the way you want to be used in this company. They're going to give you all the contemporary and dramatic parts. Like, what kind of dancing do you really want to be doing? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be a star on Broadway? You could be a star on Broadway. I thought that was fascinating. Yes. You know, I I do think that mentorship does happen a little more often than people give the ballet world credit for these kind of blunt Mm -hmm. conversations. You know, I mean, I've had blunt conversations with ballet masters and, uh, you know, before about, you know, this is how you're seen in this industry. What are you going to do with that information? And, you know, to Georgina's credit, she explored outside of classical. I mean, she was on Broadway several times and on television. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember watching the FX special on um, Bob Fosse and seeing her and being like, that's it. That's Georgina. Oh, my God. But it also doesn't erase that pain of knowing that you're not seen a certain way. Mm-hmm. And why are you not seen yeah. that way? And often it's something you have no, no control, control over. <laughs> I know it's, you know, our discussions about ballet's lack of transparency, lack of transparency to the outside world, but often inside ballet, every many things are made completely transparent. No, you're not going to get this part because your thighs are too big. Right. Like, yeah. That kind of real talk is happening and it can be devastating. Yeah. I mean, I, it can be devastating. It can also just be like... Okay. Real. You know, 
if I can't improve on this, then this is this is what's holding me back, you know, and at, like, I got a lot of talks about my confidence, tons of very blunt talks about, you know, you are getting in your own way from choreographers, mm-hmm. from directors. And it was something I was very aware of and was able to eventually kind of work through. But, you know, there were other things that I'd been told that I knew I, I wouldn't be able to change. I mean, yeah, and it's hard to parse when you're being told these things, which are just being told in the spirit of honesty, and which are the results of a, uh, some of the more toxic aspects of ballet culture as they become internalized mm-hmm. by everybody within the system. Right. Yeah. Right. Anyway, what we're trying to say is, please go read the story. We'll link to it in the show notes. And read the book when it comes out next week, next Tuesday, I think. I know that we're mm-hmm. both eager to read it in full. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everybody. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.